Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Paul Ramsey, like Luke said. Um, I am a visiting preacher here this morning, but admittedly, it doesn't feel like I'm a visiting preacher. This is my family. I got married right here about five years ago, uh, and many of you guys are close friends. I see some people I haven't met yet. Uh, it's great to see you guys. I, I, uh, have, we've been at Sojourn Galleria for the past year and a half uh, after having been members at Sojourn Heights for, I think, almost seven years, um, so it's great to be back preaching the word for you this morning. We're looking at, Lord willing, planting a church in the Brazewood Place neighborhood, southwest Houston, um, uh, just southwest Interloop, directly south, I think about like 10 or 12 miles directly south of where we are right now, is the heart of the neighborhood uh, where we want to plant. It's an honor to be here, to have been entrusted with the word this morning, uh, and I'm excited uh, to, to see what God has for us. If you're just joining us or if you missed last week, um, we're halfway through 1 Corinthians 12, as, as uh, you just heard Luke read. Uh, and we're talking about the spiritual gifts. Paul's in a section of the letter where he's talking about spiritual things, and in particular, spiritual gifts. Uh, and, and the Apostle Paul says in the last verse of our passage, earnestly desire these higher gifts, speaking particularly about, some, about revelatory gifts. Uh, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation. And, and right off the bat, I want to admit out loud that I don't have a lot of experience with these things. Um, uh, it, I've, I've been, I guess, convinced from the Bible that these gifts are still alive and for the church today. Uh, I've, been, I've been convinced of that for some time, but I haven't had a lot of experience. In fact, it wasn't until the end of July where I went to a conference with a couple of uh, brothers in Oklahoma City to a conference that was designed to equip church leaders to, to, to see these gifts used and exercised well and in a healthy way in the church. It wasn't until the end of July this year that I, that I believe that I saw authentically the exercise and practice of these gifts for the first time. And that's not to say that, that God has not worked miraculously in my life and in the life around me here at Sojourn even, but, but this was a place where they were calling these gifts by name and exercising them. That's my first experience with it. And so I say that, say that to say that, that you might be leaning away a little bit right now. This might be new for you like it is for me, uh, and that's okay. Uh, in fact, if that's you, I think that this text is something that you'll appreciate. Back in verse 1 of chapter 12, which Brandon preached on last week, Paul introduces the topic of spiritual things, uh, really responding to a letter that the Corinthians had written to the apostle, asking questions about these spiritual gifts. And if you'll notice, uh, Paul didn't jump right, in, right into practical, uh, like a practical picture of what these gifts look like in the church. We saw last week, we're going to see this week, we're going to see again next week, that Paul takes some time to develop some foundational principles about the church, and about these gifts before instructing them on their practical use because they're being so misused in the Corinthian church. And so what Paul says to the Corinthians is important to them. And I think for us today, it's, it's incredibly important as we'll see. And so uh, with that, let's begin. As a, church, uh, as a church, we struggle with value. As a culture, we struggle with value. There's many ways that, that, that we could look at this. Uh, but let me, begin with, let me begin with this illustration. I'm sure you can picture what it's like to be a part of a team uh, in which not everyone is valued. Groups in which some are highly valued for the function they serve or the work they perform, uh, and others are just kind of there taking up space. And sometimes this hierarchy of value can be explicit and antagonistic, like uh, in elementary school when kids get bullied, um, or at a, societal, at a societal level when the government writes laws to, to subjugate a certain portion of the population. Sometimes it can be explicit. Oftentimes, in fact, most of the time, though, I think it's, it's not intentional. 
Uh, sometimes uh, teams just develop bad habits of interacting with one another based on the makeup of that team. And they begin relying too heavily on a particular subset of a team, often due to the fact that there's some particularly gifted individuals who then get relied on a little bit too heavily. And this is never a good thing. You can probably picture um, the group project scenario uh, from school or college when a couple of people, probably due to their strong personalities, wind up doing all the work and a couple of people are kind of left out. Uh, and it breeds resentment. The people who do all the work think that the people who aren't doing the work aren't doing anything. And the people who aren't doing the work feel like they haven't been given a place at the table. Uh, and so it's, 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 an, it's an uncomfortable situation. When I was in high school, um, I played soccer. Uh, and, and our high school soccer team was an outstanding soccer team. I had no business, only in high school, where you kind of have to be there in the same place as other people, would I have been on the team with some of these players. Uh, specifically, a junior year of high school, uh, we, we went into the season ranked first in the state in our division. We should have won state this year. We had two players in particular who were all-stars. Uh, Adam was a forward. He was a guy, you don't need to know soccer to know this. You pass the ball to him, most of the time he scored. He put the ball in the goal and scored. Uh, we had a center defender. Um, again, you don't need to know soccer. His name's Abdefada, and, and you couldn't get the ball past. If you dribbled at him, he would take the ball away from you and start an attack for us. And so we had these two outstanding players, and as you can imagine, we developed the habits as the year went on, as the season went on, of just kind of relying on them to do their job. Adam would score, Abdefada would defend. We were just fine. And we were undefeated through this season until we made it to a team that wasn't, very, wasn't an outstandingly talented team. They, were, they had a mixed record. They'd won some, lost some. But they beat us soundly because they played as a team. They put three players on Adam, and then they scored all of their goals. You might not know this. They've scored off their goals off set pieces. So they got, went up, got fouled, and then crossed the ball in from a corner or from a foul, and they were able to score. It was like 4 or 5 zero. We got, our, we, we, we got absolutely defeated, soundly defeated. And you can imagine the locker room after that game, it wasn't an encouraging conversation. We didn't look around and say, well, guys, we tried, the best. We tried our best. We played well. No, it was a bunch of bickering. We were fighting with each other. Adam and Abdefada were yelling at everyone else. Everyone was yelling at them for not sharing the ball enough. Um, it was really an uncomfortable situation. You see groups in which not everyone is valued are divided groups. Sometimes, like I said, there's this, there's this explicit division between those who have power or authority and those who don't. Those who have it uh, begin to look down on those who don't. Those who don't begin to resent those who do. But again, oftentimes it's even when it's a peaceful sense, even when this is an implicit division, there's also this felt, really experienced division between those who are visibly gifted and those who are not. Rather than feeling like a valued part of the team, individuals begin to feel isolated and lonely, believing that they might as well not even be in the room. And that might resonate with some of us in this room because loneliness is rampant in today's world. I think that a key part of the reason for that is that as a culture, I don't think we do a very good job of valuing people. And this is true even in the Christian world. One of my main job responsibilities right now at Surgeon Gallery is to lead worship. And as a result, I listen to Christian music often. And, and the other week, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to the top 40 songs on the, the Christian billboards, the top 40 songs that Christians are listening to. Uh, and you know, one of the main themes of a number of those songs, even in the top 10, was this, was this idea of being relieved from fear, right? In particular, being relieved of the fear of not being good enough. Let me give just two examples. You know the song, uh, you might have heard of the song, No Longer Slaves, by a guy named Jonathan David Helzer. I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. It's a beautiful song. 
Uh, and what's it about? It's about no longer being a slave to fear. And the antidote he gives is knowing the intimate love of a father who wraps his arms around you and tells you that you belong. It's the ant- that song provides the antidote to loneliness, belonging. The number one song in the Christian music charts, I think for six weeks now, is a new song by, by an artist named Lauren Daigle called You Say. And the opening line of that song is, I keep fighting voices in my mind that say I'm not enough. Right? Every single lie that tells me I will never measure up. And then the chorus of that song is a litany of statements. You, God, she's singing to God. You, God, say that I'm loved. You say that I'm strong. You say that I'm held. When I don't belong, oh, you say that I am yours. Again, it's about belonging. And those are good songs. There's some great songs out there right now. But here's the thing. It's Christians who are singing them. It's Christians who love those songs, who request them to be played at their churches. And why? Because they resonate. They strike a chord, if you'd allow me that pun, in the hearts of the people in the Christian culture, uh, because that's where we are. This heightened level of focus on loneliness, on the fear of not being good enough, on not being valuable, is a reality for us right now. And while, of course, this isn't an exhaustive explanation for why that is, it's a very complicated uh, situation we find ourselves in. I think that one of the key reasons for this is that we struggle to value one another. Let me give it this way. This is, I think, a pretty common way that American Christians think about life on mission for God. If you're really sold out for God and his plan, what do you do? You become an overseas missionary. You go overseas. If you're not quite there, but you're pretty good, you become a local church pastor. If you're not quite there, then you work in nonprofits or some underpaid profession like social work or teaching that provides a service. If you're not quite there, everyone else just kind of goes to the business world, right? <laughs> that's, that's, um, that's kind of a, a, your value to God, right? And, and, and your value with respect to his mission in the world is attached to where you land within that hierarchy, even though you might not be as precise with those four buckets as I just gave. Uh, many of us probably wind up, wind up thinking about things along those lines. In a celebrity culture, very much, which surrounds us and has made its way into the church, uh, in this celebrity culture organized around the exercise of the gifts of very few, it's unsurprising that the majority of us are left wondering whether we're needed, wondering whether we're wanted, wondering whether we belong. And you see, I think for Paul, that is exactly the thing that God gave the spiritual gifts to the church in order to combat. Right? Into a world filled with loneliness and division that dates all the way back to the entrance of sin into the world, God sent his spirit to bind people together as one with him and with one another, baptized into one body, as Paul says in verse 13 of our passage, and to give gifts to each member so that it's clear that each member is essential to the mission of God and valuable to what God is doing in his or her local context. Right? You're not just supposed to know in, like, theologically that you belong in the body of Christ. You're supposed to see it. Right? You're supposed to experience the fact that you are miraculously gifted by God and you're valuable to what he's doing. The problem is, in Corinth, even where apparently they're practicing these higher gifts like crazy, that's the problem. They're practicing them like crazy rather than in order, and as a result, they're sowing division. There were some in the, in the church who were exalted for having these higher gifts, which not everyone had. Right? The church was dividing over the haves and the have-nots between this set of giftings, that set of giftings. Factions were developing in the church between the hyper-charismatics, these people speaking in tongues, giving prophecy, like right and left, and then people on the other side saying, seeing the divisions that these exercises of these gifts are causing and saying, let's kick these charismatics out of the church. We want nothing to do with them. 
And there were people all around the middle trying to figure out where they fit in the, in the mess that was the church in Corinth. So Paul enters into what's going on and essentially zooms out for them to point out how absurd this is. Christ died, Paul says, to tear down the dividing walls which, which, which caused division in the church, in the, in the world. Did he then turn around and send the promised Holy Spirit just in order to redivide them? <laughs> Absolutely not. These spiritual, Holy Spirit-given gifts are given for the building up of the whole body, not just certain individuals within the church. Because of the situation he knows he's writing into in Corinth, Paul doesn't go straight into talking to their practical application. He pauses to speak clear words of, con- of, of correction, of compassion, of love for all in the room. And while Paul wrote these words to an original audience that very much needed them, like I said, I think even today in our divided and struggling culture, struggling to find out where everyone fits in God's plan, I think the Apostle Paul's words speak clearly and compassionately in a way that is very much needed today. And so how does he address this? He really does one thing in this passage. He gives this powerful metaphor where the body of Christ Many members, but one body. Verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Brandon talked about these two verses last week, and I wanted to include them again this week because it basically kicks off this passage about the body of Christ. Paul says, listen, This is God's intent for the church. This is what Christ died in order to do. Christ died to tear down the walls that were dividing people from people and sent the Spirit to baptize us all into one body. And baptism, the word for baptism, baptizo in the Greek, is the same word as as, as for a ship that capsizes in the water. And so the point that Paul makes here is that the old order, the old way of division, of dividing from one another, has been flipped on its head, and a new way has been provided for unity in the church, and that is baptism in the Spirit, being made one into the body. We are all different. We're all coming from different places. Here, Paul says, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. Elsewhere, he elaborates, Greeks, barbarians, men, women, child, you know, he, he gives many distinctions, all to show that by the miracle of God uniting us to himself, and the baptism of the Spirit, we all drink from one Spirit, and we together make up the body just as God designed it. And what Paul goes on to say is that in uniting us to Christ, in, in making us one, God doesn't erase the diversity that existed between us in the first place. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. In fact, when God brings us together, the beauty of the miracle of God as he didn't strip down the things that made us different from one another. He sanctified them. He made us into this beautiful patchwork quilt that testifies to God's love, to God's beauty, to God's creativity in the world. We know that a painting of a single color is not a beautiful, well, if you've been to a modern museum, I did see a painting of just, a, it was a big red canvas. I don't understand it. I'm, I need to learn more about it. But if you look at a masterpiece, for example, from the Impressionistic age, or the Impressionist age, right, where they play with colors, they play with light, they put together this beautiful painting all into one beautiful canvas by the design of the, of the painter. That is what God's design was in the miracle of baptizing us all into one body, not to just blend it all together and make it uniform, but to preserve the beautiful patchwork quilt that he was creating. Look at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, It's not just a painting with one color, right? But of many. Let me keep reading. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. 
You see, what Paul's doing here is he's saying you're not one member, but you're many, and God has designed things just as he wished. As Paul goes on to say in verse 18 and a couple other places, God is the one behind this beautiful, diverse design. And the first group of people that Paul turns to in his passage are the ones who don't see themselves as an integral part of the body. Because I don't have this gift, they're saying, I must not belong. Nonsense, says Paul. This is key. All right, to give a little bit more context, in Corinthian culture, there were things that were in, right, that, that made you in the in crowd, persuasive, excellent speech, money, wealth, power, pedigree, if you were born into the right family, if you were strong, if you were beautiful. That was in, in that culture. And the laws in ancient Rome, in Corinth, protected the strong and neglected the weak. This was a whole society that was based on rewarding the strong and punishing the weak. The better ones got all the rewards and the worst ones just died eventually. That's essentially what was happening back then and this culture was slipping into the church. Strong people were elevated, the weak were ignored, they were not looking like the church Christ died in order to create. And think about how countercultural this was. For Paul to say this, Paul's talking to the less presentable ones, those who think, I don't belong here. And he's saying to them, in the hearing of those who thought they did belong, he's saying, you belong here too. Must have been incredibly encouraging for the weaker brothers and sisters in the church. And there would have been also a hint of rebuke for the strong, for the ones who, the, the ones who are accustomed to just getting their own way and being comfortable in their own skin. In other words, don't let anyone tell you that you don't belong. Right, whether explicitly or whether a thought comes into your mind, whether you start to believe the lie that that's true, don't begin those, believe those lies. What are the things that are like this for, the t- for today? It could be, that, could be simply that you're not an engineer. I don't know how it is now, but when I left here, like two-thirds of Sojourn Heights was engineers. Right? I'm not an engineer. I must not be that valuable. You don't own a house. Right? You're not married. You don't know how to teach. You can't argue like the best of them. You don't feel as comfortable in social situations. You're prone to anxiety. These are things that Satan will grab onto and keep you focused on them and convince you that because of those things, you don't belong. You don't really have as valuable a role in the church because you don't have kids yet. When you have kids, then you'll really understand. Like, don't believe, don't believe those lies. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So you see what Paul's doing there? He's saying we need different kinds of people. Diversity doesn't point to exclusion. Because you're different from me means that we just can have nothing to do with one another. No, diversity points to the beautiful inclusion for all in his body especially given our differences. And this is by the design of God. Think about the nature of God for just a moment. Early in the Bible, it says that we were created in the image of God. And think about the character of God. How is God? God is one and three. He is the perfect blend of unity and diversity. God is one, the Shema, you know, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one, and God is three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were made in God's image, and one of the ways we display this image is by being perfectly, paradoxically, but perfectly one, even 
in the midst of our diversity. You see, diversity is beautiful. And you don't need to be a Christian to know that. Everyone's talking about diversity today. What's the purpose of diversity, though? We believe that diversity exists to display the love, the heart, the creativity, the beauty of God. Diversity itself, in other words, is not the goal. You can get a a, a hundred different kinds of people from different backgrounds, different races, different stripes of all kinds. You get them all in the same room, and you're still not even half the way there. That's step one. The challenge, once you get everyone in the same room, is to get all of those people on the same page working in a unified fashion, living with value for each one of them. And this, Paul says, is what Christ has welcomed us into. Christ died. He had to die in order to make us one, in order to baptize us by his one spirit into his one body, his own body. You see, humanity, for the, whole, for the course of human history, has tried to get there. We've tried to get to diversity. It's not something new today that we're just talking about now. We've known, we know that we should be together with people who are different from us but it hasn't worked right? because we can't let go of ourselves. As a result, all of human history chronicles this tugging, dividing, pulling, insistence on our own way. And diversity only goes so far. The easiest example of this is in politics. Right? It's easy to say that we love diversity. Right? I'm, I'm not gonna tell you how to live your life. We're the land, this is the land of the free. Right? You can live how, however you want to live unless you choose that way. If we're honest with ourselves, we start to realize that we're not actually okay with other people being different from us. Because in our flesh, we want to constantly insist that my kingdom is preserved, that my kingdom is encouraged and protected, that my kingdom is built up. But this, (laughs) this is the miracle of salvation. This is the miracle of baptism into Christ, that true unity in the midst of diversity, true heart change that can lay aside our kingdom and live for God's kingdom is possible and has been made possible by Jesus Christ now unbelievably but truly, verse 20, there are many parts, yet one body. You are one. As a result, verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, verse 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Let me pause there. Um, There's something to acknowledge here. We are unified, but we are not uniform. One implication of that is that there there are parts of the body that need more lifting than others. There are stronger parts of the body who have been given gifts to strengthen the weaker. And this is potentially controversial, but it must be said, relationships within the body are not necessarily a two-way street. It's simple to illustrate. Think of a family, parents and children. No father would resent his daughter for not giving him as much as he gives to her. Right? I have two daughters. Think about my older daughter, Tulula. She's two and a half. Money is an easy example. How much money has my daughter given to me? Yes. Zero dollars, zero cents approximately. Um, how much have I given to her? I counted. Just kidding, I didn't count. Um, <laughs> a lot more than zero dollars and zero cents, right? Do I resent my daughter for it? No, God has gifted me to be her father, has organized our family in such a way that I am her father, I get to provide for her. One of the things I get to do is lift her up with not just my wallet, but with every fiber of my being. I pray for her a lot more than she prays for me. She prays for me, 
when I put the words in her mouth, Tallulah, pray for daddy, say, God, thank you for daddy. God, thank you for daddy. Okay, so she prays for me, right? You see my point. All right, our family is so ordered that I've been given a position unlike hers, and I need to go out of my way to let her know, especially as she begins to start asking questions about value, about honor, about worth. I need to let her know that she doesn't need to do anything to prove her position in our family to me, right? What kind of father would I be if I looked at her and said, you're old enough now, until you start performing, I'm just gonna start withholding my love from you. That would be silly. It sounds a little bit evil, in fact. For Paul, that, that same reality is true within the body of Christ. There are some who are higher than others. There are some who are more able than others, who are more gifted in these ways than in these other ways. There are also some who are in a stronger or weaker place in their lives. Some who are more mature and some who are infants, which Paul talks about earlier in the book. But we've all been given to one another and all of us, strong and weak alike. Higher gifts, not the higher gifts alike. We've all been given the position of membership in the body of Christ and are indispensable to its function. For me personally, right, every time I get up to preach, so long as I don't totally blow it, right, I get encouragement and praise and thank, thanksgiving. Whenever I lead worship, I get encouragement and thanksgiving. And I appreciate that very much. I don't want that to stop for me. I don't want that to stop for any leader who has a more public gifting in our church here at Sojourn. But what Paul is saying in this passage and in this section of his letter is that each of you has been given a miraculous spiritual gift for the body and each of you needs to be shown honor, love, acceptance and needs to be shown explicitly. We need to show greater honor to those who have less limelighted giftings, verse 23, so that they know even more deeply how important they are to the mission of God in the church. One example, I think about the gift of service and I'm not just talking about enjoying helping other people while that's certainly included. Um, the gift of service is a miraculous spiritual gift, according to the Bible. When you seek to step in to meet needs for some reason, by a miracle of God, right, th those offers seem to happen at just the right time, in just the way, right way, in just the right measure for just the right people. And that is God miraculously gifting people within our church with the gift of service. Does that person get up on Sunday every week and talk about them? No. We need to go out of our way because of that to lift that up, to notice it in our parishes with brothers and sisters who we love and say, I see this in you and I want to honor you so that we can all celebrate together, together the way that God has gifted our church through you. We need to go out of our way to do this. And this is by God's design. Think about the model that Christ has given us. What did Christ say? He said, so the last will be first and the first last. If anything, service and serving one another, even though it's not the most public, not the most limelighted gifting, service is the one that Jesus zooms in on time and time again and says, this is what my kingdom is like. Right? In other words, Jesus himself modeled for us what Paul is talking about here in verse 25. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let me say a couple of things about these three verses. First, Paul reiterates again the fact that it is God who has composed the body in this way. Right, this isn't by accident. This isn't your fault that you're gifted 
the way that you are. You didn't, you know, it's not that you don't have this certain gift because you didn't pray enough last week or you're not humble enough or you didn't do enough. These are gifted by God, by his grace. They're gifts of grace. And God did not compose his body just as he did with all of us in the room with our different gifts by accident. It's by God's design. The second thing, the, the, the point that Paul is driving at in verse 25 why did God compose the body with such beautiful complementary diversity and then himself give honor to the part that lacked it? He says, so that there may be no division, but the members may have the same care for one another. The same care. One member suffers, all suffer together. One member is honored, all rejoice together. This is beautiful. Guys, God designed the body to care for one another. And it's important that we do this with everyone, right? The gifted teacher, the gifted giver, the gifted servant, the gifted counselor, all are worthy of honor. All are included in the command in Romans to seek to outdo one another in showing honor. All receive the same care, verse 25, from the rest of the body. If one is suffering, all come alongside him or her. If one of our pastor's homes burns down, what do we do as a church? We up and go to care for that pastor and his family. Right? If one of our newest members Homes burns down. What do we do as a church? We up and go as a church to him or her, care for him or her and their family in their time of suffering. If, if, if one is honored, we all come alongside him or her with joy, right? celebrating with them the fact that God has loved our church through them. Think of a family with several children. Right, one kid's into football. Another kid is into art. Another kid is into Legos. Right? Does the whole family go to the football games but then neglect to celebrate the kid's you know, who are, who are into art and Legos. Does, does the whole family go cheer on the kid who's into football and then say, oh, you go to your art shows, we might hang a piece or two of art on the wall. Does the family go to the football games and then neglect to notice this incredible Lego structure that was created from scratch on the floor in the living room? No. And listen, it might take some learning. It often does. Right? Maybe, the, maybe as parents, you, you don't have any knowledge of art. Maybe you've never heard the word impressionist as it, as it refers to art. By golly, you know you're going to learn about that art so that you can celebrate your kid as he or she is into art. You don't know anything about Legos. You didn't play with Legos as a kid. By golly, you're going to start reading Lego comics with your kids. You're going to learn about them so that you can engage with them and meet them where they are and celebrate them and love them. Families do this. We know that we should do this. How could it be any different within the church, the family of God? To move on after saying these things, um, after saying these things, right, giving these qualifications, Paul finishes this section with a pretty meaty passage, verses 27 through 31. Let me read it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. Think about, think about what Paul has just been talking about this whole time. Right? Paul has been talking about the fact that the whole body matters. Everyone, even those who are apparently unpresentable, are given greater honor so that there may be no division in the body. And then with that said, Paul goes on to say that the unified body of Christ has a functional order. God has designed the body by his will, right? And part of his appointment of each member in the body is their appointment to a particular function or role. 
And so while it might be more desirable to be a hand because you get to manipulate things, you get to pick things up, you get to write, you, you fight with your hands, you know, hands get the exciting part. Sometimes the foot says, all I do is carry this body around. They might not know about soccer yet, but you know, the foot might want to be a hand. But God has so ordered the body such that each part fits perfectly as it has been designed where it is in the body. But then Paul gives this ranking. He says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, and so forth. What's he doing? Is Paul saying that some are more important than others? Well, that can't be it. That would be basically against what he has been talking about up until this point. No, what Paul is doing here, I think, is brilliant. He's saying on the one hand that there is to be no division, that every part is essential. And on the other hand, there's an order in which things are to be understood. There's a leadership structure within the body. There are some gifts that are more visible than others, some gifts that in themselves are an honor to receive and practice. And think about what he said earlier, the less presentable parts receive greater honor. Why would this be the case? Because God knows that the temptation to envy is great for us. God knows that we are constantly tempted to look at other people and line up ourselves, not with respect to him and what he's done for us, but with respect to how we're doing with each other. Right? But our propensity to comparison with one another is not something that God is going to allow to frustrate his plan for the body. He urges us to go and take care, go out of our way, right, to honor those with the gifts that aren't considered the greater gifts so that they are able to see how indispensable they are to the function of the body, even as these higher gifts, which are higher gifts, are practiced. We know this to be true. Why is it that authors of books on their acknowledgements page, most people skip to the first chapter and they skip all this stuff, but why is it that authors always thank their wives or their husbands and their families? You know, my, my husband, my wife, long-suffering, my kids, thank you for being patient with me as I finish this book. Why is it that high-powered CEOs always thank their administrators, their teams who, who, who work to make them look good? Right, why is it that the MVP at every athletic event, as soon as they win the MVP award, the first thing they say, I couldn't have done it without my team? Right? because they know that without these others, their performance would be nothing. And listen, it can be contrived, for sure. You can be full of pride and still say, oh yeah, I couldn't have done it without my team. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Right? We can do the same thing in the church, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about real unity, real honor that we're giving to people without whom this body would not function properly. What is a preacher without a congregation to receive and actually apply the words that he's speaking? We're going to hear a little bit about that next week. To close out this passage, Paul says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Some people believe that when you're saved, you're given all the gifts that you will ever have. According to what Paul says here, though, that can't be true. Furthermore, the rhetorical questions um, that Paul rattles through in verse 29 clearly lead to the answer being no. Right? Not all are apostles. Not all are prophets. Not all are pe- teachers miracle workers, etc. God is pleased to give these gifts to the body, but not all to one person. Right? Paul says, earnestly desire in a way that hints that we should be seeking things that are not in our possession yet. But we must remember that God is pleased to give these gifts to the body, not to just one person. What this means is that this earnest desire can be met by God within our community. There are gifts that we do not have yet in our church that we will experience by God's grace through particular individuals through whom God chooses to minister to our church. We should earnestly desire these gifts. 
The question is, what happens when someone's given a gift like this? Right, when one person is given a gift, does that mean that the rest of us have desires that have been unrealized? Right, the rest of us are left discontent? No. Verse 26, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. If one person within our church receives a gift of prophecy, then that is a gift for the whole church. If one person with our church, within our church receives a gift of healing, is able to pray with faith and see someone actually miraculously healed as they pray, that is a gift for the entire church designed to show God's love and to demonstrate the power and reality of his kingdom in the present. Paul's point is not that you're gonna get all these gifts and that whatever you haven't gotten, you should be discontent about. No. What Paul says is to earnestly desire these things so that when we watch as God builds us together, we get to celebrate with one another because the whole body benefits and celebrates when one part of the body is gifted with something. To say one more thing about verse 31, for some of us, this will correct our view of the gifts. Paul says to desire them. Many of us have not lived lives, myself included, that could be fairly characterized as lives of earnest desire for these higher gifts. We have all kinds of reasons that this isn't the case. Maybe we've never experienced them before. Maybe we've seen them abused. Maybe we've come to a theological perspective that doesn't leave much room for them. But those things all go to show how important it is for us to base our understanding of, the God, of God and the gifts that he is pleased to give to the church on his word rather than on our experience. You see here, in one sense, Paul is saying don't overreact. Right, there's a reason he doesn't end the passage with verse 30. Think about what Paul's been doing. He, with an eye on those in Corinth who are using the higher gifts improperly, sowing division, Paul's been reining them back here in chapter 12. He's been correcting their misuse. But lest the Corinthians misunderstand his point, he ends with verse 31. Paul says, while these gifts can be misused, they are important nevertheless, and they should be pursued. Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to, out of fear of their misuse, neglect, overreact, and cease to pursue them. So if we need to, brothers and sisters, let's let God's word correct our view of these gifts. Paul instructs us in no ambiguous terms to earnestly desire the higher gifts. Earnestly desire. And maybe it could be helpful to understand it with respect to evangelism. We are told to earnestly desire uh, in, in a manner of speaking, that people who don't yet know the Lord come to know the Lord. We're see, we, we live lives of desire, of going uh, to, to, to introduce people to God who don't know God yet. And so what does that look like on the ground level? Does that mean I don't think about it a lot and I just sit in my couch and wait for my neighbor to knock on the door and ask me about Jesus? No, it means that we pursue relationship with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family members who don't know Jesus, always asking God to open a door for us to share about him. Right? There's, an, there's, a, there's a concept of pursuit. You make space in your life, in your calendar, to pursue people who don't know the Lord yet. So too, Paul would say to us, should we make space in our gatherings, in our lives with one another, in our conversations, for God to miraculously gift his people for the sake of building up the whole body into a flourishing uh, beacon of light, pushing back the darkness in the world. And here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean to look back and conclude, I'm a failure. Doesn't mean to look back and conclude we are failing, because we are certainly not. It means 
to simply let God's word inform our lives and let it ignite a desire in our heart for these higher gifts and see what God might do. It might be you. It might be me who's given a gift of tongues. That's the one that I'm most uncomfortable about. I honestly hope that it's not that one for me. Haven't been given it yet. Might be you, might be me, might be any one of us who's given a gift to be used for the body of Christ. But whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's anyone, we all celebrate together as we watch as God builds his body together in love. Let me close with this picture. Um, you might have heard of Francis Chan. Uh, he's, a, he's an outstanding teacher, Bible teacher. He's been probably for the past 15, 20 years, he's been asked to preach at conferences, speaking to tens of thousands of people at a time. Um, about 15 years ago, he planted a church. He started a church out of his living room, and very quickly, because of his excellent communication gifting, that church exploded. It grew to somewhere close to 5,000 people. It's a mega church in Southern California. Um, in this passage, um, Francis Chan was preaching through this passage, the second half of 1 Corinthians 12. And it, the way that he tells the story, you might be familiar with it, it kind of wrecked him. Francis became frustrated biblically. He said, every one of these people in this church has a supernatural gift that's meant to be used for the body. And everyone shows up week after week to hear and see my gift. So a couple of years ago, he, 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 he left his megachurch, he handed his church over to other leaders and left to pursue a, a house church planting movement. I think it's called We Are Church. I don't know how it's going right now. He's, he's not as public as he used to be for this reason. Um, but they're seeking to empower the use of the gifts in these homes, in these smaller churches for the sake of being faithful to this passage. And he gave this comparison about the church. Right? He, he said it's like being adopted rather than being at an orphanage. An orphanage is where you have a bunch of kids whose needs are being met, but it's a bunch of kids with one person in charge. But you think about a family where these children are adopted. That's a family where they're valued. They know they're not gonna get moved around. And they are a part of what, is, of what is, makes that family beautiful. Sojourn Heights, Sojourn. This is the kind of church that we want to be. And God's intent for his gifts are to make each one of us not just know in our heads, but to see and to, and, to, and to really experience what it means that each of us is valuable to what God is doing in our church. How could we not want to be this kind of church? So let's earnestly desire and watch as God builds us together in love. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for each other. Thank you for your word. I pray that you would have your way with us, Lord. Um, I pray that you would... Uh, if there is anything in my mouth this morning that was unpleasing to you, that you would graciously omit that from all of our memories, that we might be able to hold fast to you through your word. God, show us your love for us. Show us our love. Show us through this church, through our parishes, through the conversations that we will have this Sunday with the people who are sitting next to you. Show us that we are loved by one another, ultimately that we are loved by you, which is the most important thing about any of us. We love you. We thank you. Be glorified in our hearts as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.